are so excited to have our old friend Felix Salmon here with us. We have wanted to have him all through our attempt to run a podcast series, in part because Felix is largely the inspiration for this podcast through his wonderful Slate Money podcast, where I can't- Which you, which you have been on more than once, I believe, or at least once. <laughs> I have been on it. And I have to plug my favorite part of that podcast, which is your analysis of the television series Succession that I think is <laughs> so brilliant. I love it the is, TV show. It is the, a great, great disappointment to me that Succession does not seem to be on air in 2020. If you thought 2020 was bad, you are right. 2020 is terrible. And the reason we know that 2020 is terrible is there is no season three of Succession in 2020. But I am assured there will be one in 2021. So we have something to look forward to. Oh, good. Oh, good. But in terms of background, Felix is, to me, the first great sovereign debt journalist. I think before Felix was writing about sovereign debt in Euro money, uh, a journal I had never heard of before I got to know <laughs> Felix and have not heard of uh, since really, uh, since Felix left them, there were no journalists who had- This episode brought to yet. you by Euromoney, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Euromoney is still going. I mean, we, there, was, there, were a, there was a successor to me at Euromoney called Sid Verma, but he's now at Bloomberg. And so, yeah. Now, now the sovereign debt journalism world is like, it's Colby Smith over at the FT and people like that. But you're right. When I started going deep into the Ecuadorian sovereign debt restructuring in, what was that, 99? Yes, um, 99, 2000. I got really excited about it. And I, was, I kept on badgering my editors about how such, how, what, what a big deal it was. And um, yeah, they had no idea what I was talking about. I'm like, guys, don't you understand? No one has ever restructured a sovereign bond ever in the history of the debt markets. And they looked at me completely blankly. And so that was, that was, my, that was my thing for the next few years. Started with Ecuador and then it moved on through Uruguay and, and Peru, of course, and the rest is history. So that, this, this actually is a reason why I wanted to talk to you. And I thought at first that Mark and I would talk to you about the history of those articles that you wrote about Uruguay and Ecuador and the official sector interventions and all of that, that maybe in some ways are in the past, although you do periodically come back to it at your column for Axios. But we've had some rather significant developments lately that I can't help but want to ask you about at the outset. And we have a news hook. We actually have a news hook for this podcast. And it's Guatemala. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the when I read the article on Guatemala, the piece that was in uh, Fitch's report, A, I couldn't believe what I was reading because it immediately brought to mind the Elliott versus Peru instance. So I'm gonna ask uh, both you and Mark, maybe I'll ask Mark first uh, to, to lay out what actually happened there. 
and his view of the implications since between the two of us, Mark actually knows how law works and I just pretend. And then Felix, I, I'd love to know whether or not this is sort of how the Paripasu incident with Peru first broke, since you're one of the few people who had recognized early that that was a big deal. I mean, the rest of the market didn't recognize that this was game changing until many years later. So Mark, if you could give us a little um, of the basics and then maybe we can turn it over to Felix. Yeah, I mean, the, so as far as I understand what happened, the some an arbitration claimant, so some creditor of Guatemala waited- Wait, are we talking about Guatemala or Peru? Guatemala. Guatemala. Ah, okay. All right. I was getting really into like digging up all of the old, you know, what happened in Peru. But we, it, it is assumed that we all know about Elliot versus Peru. And now we're just going to talk about Guatemala. Yeah, I think we can parallels. talk about, we can talk about the parallel. Yeah, I think yeah. that was, as I understood Me Too's question, okay. um, whether there are important parallels maybe. And, I, and I'm not so sure myself, but I, I want to to hear what you think, Felix. I yeah. mean, basically, as I understand what happened, this Tico Guatemala, the, the creditor, waited until a few days before a coupon payment was due. And then they got a kind of restraining order that prevented the fiscal agent from sending the money on to the, the bondholder. So in effect, they used the legal process to force a default in kind of the same way that we've seen um, it, both in Peru and with Argentina. To, to my mind, so I think they're going to ultimately lose. I think the, the funds that the fiscal agent receives are not actually attachable, but they used this preliminary process that basically freezes money for long enough for the court to figure out whether it's attachable. And they timed that process so that it would in effect force a default because they'd get this preliminary restraining notice issued and the court wouldn't be able to figure out the kind of final disposition, whether the, the, the money was attachable or not in time for the coupon payment to to um, the due date. So basically it forces at least a, a technical default and um, we'll see how long that lasts while the court tries to figure out whether the, the money is attachable. And I, and I think, like I said, the answer is gonna be no, but it's, it's interesting in that well, we they were able find to out, say we that again. We won't find out the answer. I don't think we'll find out the answer because Guatemala paid. I mean, this was enough of a threat that they paid up. Kind of like, the, remember, the uh, Felix will tell us about the Elliott versus Peru, but I remember hearing the lawyers on the Peru side saying, this is a complete bullshit case. We'll win it in court. We'll win it in court. But Peru was like, we don't want to risk it. We're going to just pay. So did, did Guatemala pay? Yeah, that's what I heard today. I mean, okay. I could be wrong. I haven't seen official notice, but I heard they paid. So I hadn't seen that. I had just seen the um, the latest order that judge had entered, basically telling them to put their heads together and try to work it out. But um, yeah, it's all in the timing of the remedy, right? You do this right before the coupon is due and before the court can figure it out, you force it to fall. And, that's a, and it's a classic, I mean, it's, it's a classic legal maneuver. Who, do we know who Tico's lawyer is? Yeah, I want to say white and case. Um, right. Pretty sure white and case. I will try to figure out if I need to correct that. 
But the but Mita's absolutely right that this is uh, very much a replay of Elliot versus Peru, where everyone was basically saying, look, you know, Elliot's been very clever and they managed to find some random judge somewhere to give them this injunction, but everyone knows this will never hold up and Peru will appeal and win. But before Peru could appeal and win, they were faced with the prospect of defaulting on the debt effectively. And they were like, there's no way we can risk that. And they just paid up in full. And I wouldn't, and, and, yeah, given the amounts of money at stake and the utter terror with which any finance minister views the prospects of even a short-term technical default, um, you can see how that alone is enough to get countries to pay up. And the lesson here, really, I mean, there's a couple of lessons. One, we can talk about the difference between fiscal agents and trustees. But the other lesson is just that so much of what happens in this world is is uh how to put this yeah the, I, I think the lesson here is is that countries really 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 want to avoid any hint of defaulting on their bonds like it's and if you try and find some judge somewhere if you manage to go jurisdiction shopping and find a judge who can threaten that even a little bit that's all you need to do to extract money out of a sovereign yeah and it's funny because if one creditor can do it the next creditor can do it and the next creditor can do it um you would think that there would be in some ways an incentive just to get a resolution of the question, right? Like just say that these assets, the money is not attachable and then we can prevent creditor two and creditor three from coming forward and trying the same thing. But the terror seems great enough that countries aren't even willing to, to have the fight once. I don't know, do you think that's, that's Rational, Felix? Do you think the market would actually respond that unfavorably to letting this sit in technical default for, it might have only been a week or two to get a, a judge's decision on it? Yeah, I don't entirely understand the, you know, the, the, the terror that um, finance ministers have when faced with the bond market. You know, that famous line from Jim Carville about when he gets reincarnated he wants to come back as the bond market because you're the <laughs> you're the, like the most powerful force in the world but yeah i don't understand people are like the market would react like what is the market and why does it matter so much and i mean guatemala's got a double b minus credit rating anyway it's not like the market is loving guatemala in the first place so it seems to me that on a rational level um the cost of default if the if default is very short term, if it, as you say, it only lasts a couple of weeks, and if your default is really just a technical default from a double B level, and then it's cured immediately, the cost of default is not going to be that great. And on some level, the bondholders will like the fact that you are trying to keep the money for them rather than just paying whatever any other creditor is demanding but you're right that doesn't seem to be how finance ministers think and i blame the sell side but i don't know maybe you have a 
other idea of like why there's so much unanimity in places like Guatemala and Peru that you must never um, even appear to threaten the sanctity of coupon payments. No, this this seems very connected to all of the research, you know, the recent research by people like Ugo Panitza that says economists have had it wrong for a long time in terms of thinking that countries are really eager to default and that instead, if we understand the incentives of politicians, it's that they really, it's a scarlet letter. They want to do everything to avoid the news stories about defaults and that creditors, especially the litigious creditors, understand this. So they don't, you know, as you said about the Peru case, they don't need to win. They just need the preliminary injunction. And that's the whole ballgame for them often. Now, but Felix, I wanted, I want to ask you... Uh, but, but can I just say, like, this isn't a question of public relations, right? It's not, it's not the headlines. If you look at say, Argentina versus Venezuela, or Ecuador versus Venezuela, right? Where in places like Argentina and Ecuador, you have politicians who are perfectly willing to come out and say, these evil foreign creditors, uh, they don't deserve a penny and I'm going to default on them. And this is a great populist move that is actually popular versus what was happening in Venezuela for years where it couldn't afford to pay its debts. And everyone knew that it couldn't afford to pay its debts, and yet it would kept on making coupon payments month after month and year after year in the face of everyone just saying, you're going to need to default, you're going to need to default, it's going to happen eventually, and there's, if you're going to do it eventually, you should do it now. They didn't. Um, there was no benefit to Venezuela for dragging out the inevitable as long as it did, and it got no benefit domestically in terms of public relations. So I don't think it's a PR thing, but the thing is I don't understand what it is. So, okay, so I have to, since you brought up Venezuela, I have to say that yet between yesterday and today, I have about a dozen emails in my inbox from people holding claims against Venezuela. And the question is, why didn't this occur with Venezuela since there were so many people, so many institutions that had exit claims that had been converted into judgments against Venezuela and Venezuela was merrily paying off its bondholders, as you just mentioned, for a long while. And I do wonder whether those exit claim holders are now turning to their lawyers and saying, okay, why did we not get paid? Why didn't we try this strategy there? Uh, so Mark and Felix- I, or, or maybe they did, like, so Mark, you were saying something about how this this did not go down in the Southern District of New York, right? This was some state court? Yeah, they, I mean, the, the, basically the way it works is they got their arbitration award confirmed in the U.S. And then they, that was in D.C. And then they just went to New York State Court and recorded the judgment there. And I don't know how that process works, if they needed the judge's intervention or if they could do it on their own. But basically, as a matter of course, they got this restraining notice issued, which is, like I was saying, just a temporary measure to let the court figure out whether they get the assets. But all of this is, yeah, it's probably too strong to say they're hoodwinking the judge, but it's clearly 
a very clever but somewhat exploitative use of the process. I, th I, you know, I think it's pretty clear that the, as I said, the money is not attachable. So does this? So I guess the question that at the end of the day is, does this constitute a game changer, uh, like Elliot versus Peru did, or is it just temporary insanity? I think it's an important question. It has to be, right? Like, as you said, everyone who was holding Venezuelan claims was sitting around going, well, why didn't we try this? And it's not like there's any shortage of sovereigns out there who are staying current on their bonded debt, but like in all manner of weird tussles over non, you know, other kinds of debt. Everyone's going to be trying this now. I, and, and, you know, it worked for Elliot. I can't even remember where did they get the injunction? You know, they got like Andy Lowenfeld, but like it was, it worked for, yeah, it worked for Tico. Like it seems that if you find the right judge on the right day with a following wind and, you know, the moon in the right house, it can work for you. It's worth a try. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. And the, the, in some ways it's kind of astonishing that we are, decades in to a world where these kinds of creditors have been active in trying to enforce claims. And we still actually don't know, don't have good answers to some of these questions, questions about whether money used to pay bondholders can be attached, whether new borrowing can be attached. And, and what I think the reason we don't have good answers in part, it links to what Felix says, this is just not a fight finance ministers are willing to have even if there's a good chance that they're gonna win it. And, and you know, until, until there's a little more backbone in some of these country finance ministries, maybe that's unfair, but, but not too unfair. Until that time, you know, this is a, an option that creditors are gonna have available to them. But maybe that's, a, that's enough on Guatemala. Or there's so much we wanted to talk to you about, Felix. Um, and I, I, I think there was an election recently in the US. There may be some stuff related to that um, that I wanted to ask. I know Mitu has a bunch of questions. So let's take a short break. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know anything about elections in the US. But yeah, maybe I, I, I heard something. Someone whispered something to me about it. So yeah, I think we, we, we may have had that. our last one. So um, <laughs> we can talk about that in, in just a minute. So for the second half, I want to switch gears entirely to talk a little bit about what maybe we can expect of a Biden administration. So Felix, my sense, and I've been following this, I suspect a lot less closely than you have, but my sense is that the Trump administration was not exactly sort of heavily engaged with sort of multilateral institutions, was not... Um, uh, especially interested uh, not just in multilateralism, but in emerging market debt, maybe more narrowly. Uh, so I guess I'm I'm interested first of all in what your perception is of the hopefully outgoing administration in terms of their sort of engagement with the IMF, with emerging markets in in general, and whether you think there are going to be changes and what changes you think we can expect from a Biden administration. And Felix, if I can add to that, yeah. um, you know, given that I often listen to your podcast about to find out 
what's going on with things like Brexit. I'm wondering whether you have followed the UK's involvement in sort of international financial architecture questions in recent years, because my sense is in the early days when you were the only sovereign debt journalists in existence, <laughs> that the two major players were the US Treasury and uh, the Bank of England. And my sense is today, neither one is an important player. But again, I don't know. I mean, I'm- No, I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, and we, have, we have this like, you know, G zero world now in, in international financial architecture and, and sovereign debt and that kind of thing that we've lost the hegemon. One, one of the um, things I used to be very impressed by was that there was always a super smart person was always chosen to be deputy and the secretary for international affairs and treasury. It was this incredibly important job that no one had ever heard of. And you, you had people like Larry Summers had a job, Tim Geithner had the job, Tim Adams had the job, Randy Qualls had the job, like a, a bunch of these guys, you know, who are all, Lael Brainerd, I think, had the job at one point. So, uh, you know, it was these super smart technocrats would always go in there, be on top of their brief, and would have these high-level meetings with their counterparts in various other countries and would be... Um, really shepherding the U.S. interest and the international interest and trying to balance those things um, would completely dominate the discussion at um, the IMF, of course, where they have a veto and would not be shy about threatening to use that veto. And there was a bunch of like very, it was understood how powerful and central the, the U.S. was. And there was, surprisingly for all that there were, definitely tensions in terms of transition periods between administrations, uh, especially when you're going from one party to another party in the White House, um, there wasn't a huge amount of clear blue water between the Republican and the Democratic way of approaching that job. They, they all kind of did more or less the same thing in a smart technocratic way. and. You, you know, they might have slightly different attitudes towards Cuba or something like that, but ultimately you could see a huge amount of continuity going on in that political position that really felt like a bit more like the English kind of permanent civil service than the American, you know, um, imperial executive where one group of people gets swept out and another group of people comes in and they do the exact opposite. So that was this incredible source of continuity for many, many years, and then Trump comes along, right? And Trump has no interest in this, and Mnuchin has no interest in this, and Mnuchin is a micromanager, and effectively, amazingly, failed to fill most of the jobs in the Treasury for like his entire time there. He just had no interest in filling those jobs. Just like, you know, Rex Tillerson had no interest in filling jobs at State. One of the weirdly consistent things that you find in the Trump administration across a bunch of different cabinet agencies is that the cabinet ministers just don't fill those jobs. And I think that happened absolutely at Treasury, that you lost a huge amount of depth of the bench there. 
There weren't technocrats in charge. No one really cared. No one really had any interest. A huge amount of institutional knowledge just kind of evaporated. And, you know, now like swam, you know, swims around in, I don't know, Brookings and, and the Center for Global Development and various places like that. But like Treasury itself just isn't what it used to be. The New York Fed isn't what it used to be on this because the New York Fed, you know, in the days of Terry Cherkey would always be in the, um, in the middle of these things. And as you say, the Bank of England kind of has more important things to worry about right now. You know, it's in the middle of um, a major domestic crisis. And, and kind of the reason why you could have Treasury and the Bank of England taking the lead on this was, you know, because they had that kind of noblesse oblige dating back to the 1940s, but also because they didn't have major domestic crises to worry about. That's, you know, England has, its, has major, major problems right now. Um, you know, it is a sovereign debt problem. It's not like trying to solve anyone else's sovereign debt problem. So, um, yeah, we have this situation where they are not driving the agenda, where there's no one obviously at the IMF who's driving the agenda anymore. And so, yeah, it all feels a little bit headless. And maybe, I mean, I mentioned Tim Adams, who was in that job at Treasury and is now running the IIF, which is the banks, basically. He kind of knows what he's talking about. And I do worry that in the absence of any governments taking the lead on this, you are going to see the private sector get more and more of what it wants. So, so all right, technocrats had a good run of it, but their day is maybe over, along with, you know, scientists and voters and other useless things of the past, but in the, in the absence of U.S. leadership, who, if anyone, has stepped up? I mean, obviously, China is increasingly becoming its own center of gravity, but were... But China's the, not really an influence in the IMF, not like that, you know? Not like, so who is? Are the Germans, or is it kind of headless right now? I think I would I would opt for headless. I would say there's there's a void there. Um, I would also say that if Janet Yellen becomes the new Treasury Secretary, which is looking increasingly likely, then you know things could change quite quickly. Like you don't get like it just doesn't get more sort of competent and, and technocratic than Janet Yellen, um, and she is going to inherit a barren wasteland of Treasury. But you know sometimes barren wastelands are where you can plant the most feckin' seeds. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that this is going to be um, this vacuum forever. And maybe depending on Mitch McConnell and who he's willing to um, confirm, like we could start seeing Treasury get its mojo back relatively quickly, but like, don't hold your breath. So Felix, um, should we be, very uh, concerned. So it looks like Trump is not going to allow anything meaningful to happen from the Biden folks for as long as he can. And that means that Treasury is not going to be doing anything because there's nobody there to do anything. And at the same time, the pandemic is getting worse. I mean, Stores are running out of toilet paper, I think. Uh, Mark didn't believe me, but uh, when I went to the grocery store, 
there were already signs about how much toilet paper you could buy. And that, that's my leading indicator. But it, but it is uh, concerning that there's nobody manning uh, the ship at, its, at the time that the, the waters are um, quite rough. And I guess one response uh, is, oh, look, you know, the G20, whoever they are, uh, they're coming out with common frameworks and DSSI and um, other things. And is, is, are the Saudis uh, running everything now? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think on some level, like that is maybe the silver lining, right? If you, if, if the Americans are seeding the field for the foreseeable future, um, because we do have a major pandemic crisis, and that is going to be what the only thing that anyone in the Biden administration really cares about in the first instance. Um, you know, the, the international aspects of Treasury are definitely secondary to that. So, you know, maybe what that does is create an opening for, you know, the Davos crowd and the G20 and the group of 30 and the old graybeards like yourself. And, you know, we can, we can just sort of, I just, I just don't think they have the ability to implement anything. And one of the big problems with this is that change always comes so incredibly slowly, right? How long did it take to get CACs? So, um, yeah, there, there, there will be lots of sort of, intoning of oh yes this is very important but if there's a immediate crisis which there is if the pandemic starts causing a major um sovereign debt crisis in say sub-saharan africa or something like that or, or, or latin america like i don't think that anyone is nimble enough or has enough bandwidth to be able to respond on an international level like we used to have these international firefighters who would come in from treasury and the fed and put out fires around the world and that entire fire department has now been dismantled so felix i don't know if you've gotten a chance to look at the latest g20 output on saving the world it, it, this thing called the common framework which i think just means there's nothing of real substance but i'm deeply skeptical, but I'm wondering uh, what you think about it since you have covered the Paris Club and you've covered comparability of treatment. And to, to my reading, th this common framework, all it does is it says there should be com comparability of treatment. And, but, it, but there are certainly people in the official sector who are saying, this is just a major revolution because you know it it incorporates China somehow, and uh, maybe other um, developing countries who are starting to lend to other parts of the yet other parts of the developing world. I imagine India is one of these countries. So, what what's your thought about the common framework and maybe the DSSI? <sighs> I, 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 my, my gut feeling, and I really haven't been looking at this super closely, but my gut feeling is exactly the same as yours. Um, and it, which is basically like, yeah, people have been talking about comparability of treatment for 
basically as long as the parents club has existed, right? I mean, that's nothing new. Um, the mechanisms by which the private sector gets bailed in are definitely more understood now. And probably um, if you look at the success of the last Argentina deal, you know, it's, um, it feels less like rocket science, although it's definitely rocket science in the case of Venezuela, these things are very case by case. But like, I, I suspect that in a normal world where you did have proper US leadership for this kind of thing, then there would just be a kind of drumbeat of like, we don't need to reinvent the wheel every time and, and create and, and, and treat these things like major crises every time. We don't need to call up, you know, the sages at Citibank and HSBC and get them to do exceptional things because we have a playbook and we can turn to the playbook and we've done it before and we will do it again. And there's, and the private sector understands that and it's predictable and they're not gonna put up as much as a, of a bus. And I think over the medium to long term, I'm hopeful that we will start moving in that direction. But I think you're absolutely right that in, that there's nothing obvious right now that that, 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 that is happening, um, there's some big change right now. I think these things are super incremental and super slow. So we, we've been talking a lot about sovereign debt problems, but before we kind of wrap up, I, I wanted to shift gears a little bit to see if you had thoughts on whether we're thinking enough about sub-sovereign debt problems, sort of state and local debt crises in the U.S., provincial crises in mm -hmm. other countries. You know, I... I sort of feel like we don't have as good a handle, not just on amounts of debt, but we don't know what those contracts look like. We don't know what the, whether the mechanisms that we rely on sort of routinely to restructure sovereign debt are present or will work as well. And we've seen, you know, certainly in Argentina and elsewhere, we've seen a lot of activity on the sub-sovereign front. So I, I wonder what your thoughts are about kind of, whether we're likely to see a wave of sub-sovereign debt crises, and if so, whether we're prepared for that. So the obvious one is the US, right? Because yep. we have this massive uh, problem right now in terms of state and local finances, which have been, there's this, you know, just absolutely decimated by the pandemic. And for reasons that I don't pretend to understand, the Republican Party takes it as an article of faith that this has nothing to do with the pandemic and it's just profligate wastefulness on the part of all of these states who deserve to go bust basically and they're not gonna get any kind of federal bailout. And so the long as The likeliest crisis and the easiest one to solve, but The easiest one solved. to solve and, and exactly, but so long as Mitch McConnell is in charge of the Senate, there will not be the kind of bailout that the US states need. And that is gonna cause, um, huge, huge problems at the state, fiscal problems at the state level. Now, I am, I am unsure whether the huge fiscal problems at the state level will actually result in defaults. Um, for all the reasons we were just talking about, 
when it came to sovereigns and places like Guatemala and Peru and the way that people really don't want to default, the same is true of sub-sovereigns. The same was true of Puerto Rico, right? Puerto Rico kept on paying its bonds long after it became abundantly clear that that was unsustainable. I'm quite sure that, you know, New York and Illinois and any other indebted state you care to mention will similarly like move heaven and earth to make their coupon payments. Um, I'm quite sure, I mean, certainly right now, they have no problem rolling over their debts. They also have these balanced budget amendments and constitutions and stuff like that, which actually makes it quite difficult for them to, um, to borrow a lot um, over and above, you know, what they, what they can bring in in tax revenue. So Puerto Rico was obviously the exception to that rule. It always ran much bigger deficits than, than any other state because it could, because it didn't have to pay, um, you know, federal taxes. There's a whole, but you know, Puerto Rico was unique in that regard. So I am not necessarily predicting a major series of rolling defaults at the municipal and state level in the United States. I think we're probably more likely to see a rolling uh, just like massive round of layoffs and public service cuts. And I was just reading in the New York Times about how the MTA in New York will have to cut service by 40%. And, and, and that kind of thing, I think, is probably more likely. Um, but you're right. And there is there is a huge amount of opacity when it comes to sub-sovereign debts. Uh, there's a huge amount of opacity, of course, when it comes to sovereign debts, too. Like most people, most countries have, it's it, we, we have no idea how much they owe and who they owe money to. And it's a major problem in the age of China becoming a global power that no one knows how much money is owed to China by any country in the world. It's, it's this huge question mark. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a bunch of very, very tough problems out there. And yeah, to, to go back to your original question, like no one who seems to be well-placed to try to resolve those problems. Um, yeah, all I can hope for really is the idea that maybe Mitch McConnell won't be in charge of the Senate for the next four years and you'll be able to, like, if the states can kick the can down the road just far enough that Mitch McConnell isn't in charge anymore, then things can start fixing themselves. So, Felix, thank you so much. We've taken up too much of your time, but I'm, I'm going to ask you one last question that our conversation through this podcast has uh, forced upon me. And I think you might have given it an answer, but I'm going to ask it again just to make sure that, that, um, that I wasn't hearing the answer correctly. But here, my, my optimistic question was, um, going to be, well, you know, now that uh, we have a Biden administration, Kamala Harris, that's more internationalist, aren't they going to start populating the Treasury Department and positions at the fund and the bank with the kinds of people who were there in the Bush administration and the Obama administration and the prior Bush administration, Clinton, things are going to come back to normal. But hearing you talk, and especially when you brought up the fact that there's, there's this going to have to be a single-minded focus on dealing with the pandemic in this country, my fear 
is that even though Trump is hopefully gone, we're going to be highly nationalist in our view and that the, the days of internationalism and concern about making sure that the emerging markets are stable are gone once and for all. Yeah, I think I, you know, it would be great to think that the Trump years were an aberration and we can just mean revert. You know, I love that idea. I will welcome it with open arms if it happens. Um, I look at David Malpass at the World Bank and he hasn't been as bad as people had feared, right? He, he hasn't done like this sort of John Bolton thing of like go in and try and burn the place down or, or, or you know, in the way that, as I say, like Rex Tillerson did at State, right? So, but he is gonna be there for the foreseeable future. He's not going anywhere. You're not gonna have like a constructive technocrat in that role. Um, and people are going to be distracted and there are going to be a bunch of priorities that are just higher up on the list. And first and foremost is the effect of the pandemic domestically on the United States. And the politics of the Democratic Party are becoming much more domestically focused on, on the people who need help in America. The politics of the Republican Party have become like downright isolationist. And the idea that we're just going to sort of regrow uh, a bunch of internationally minded, you know, Tim Geithner types who grew up in Indonesia and, you know, uh, global citizens, I think is improbable. I mean, I hope it'll happen, but I would say the probability is less than 50%. I think we are definitely gonna see an improvement. It, you could hardly get worse than the Trump years, but, are we going to go back to something that is recognizably the world that, you know, I was writing about back in the 2000s when, you know, there was a small group of people who understood what was going on and tried to be in charge of things. I doubt it somehow. Well, thank you so much, Felix. You've been so kind, even if we are ending on deeply pessimistic note hopefully we will all be wrong and uh soon trump will give his janet yellen place your hope in janet <laughs> yellen who's gonna come in and just fix everything if she can't do it then no one can uh, sounds, sounds almost like judy shelton but different <laughs> well i mean like that's good news right if you want to end <laughs> yeah, on optimistic you know it looks like judy shelton's <laughs> gonna join the fed <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, guys.